And I'd like to begin this morning by relating to you a true story that ran on ABC News in February of 2016. An elderly couple in the Midwest were down in the basement of their home cleaning it out. But this was not your typical spring cleaning exercise. This couple had raised their family in this home. They'd lived in this house for decades, but they had fallen on hard times. And now the bank was foreclosing on their house. And so it was a sad day as they went down into the basin and began to go through things, anticipating a move and getting the clutter out of the way. And in the basement, they saw a stack of boxes over in the corner, and they thought that Some of those boxes might be good for packing up the things that they really wanted to keep. And and so as they went through these long-forgotten boxes, throwing away almost everything that they found in those boxes, they, they came to one box, and in the bottom of this one box were some comic books, ten of them to be exact. And as they rifled through these comic books, they noticed that one of them was dated June 1938. And on the front cover of this comic book was the picture of Superman with a car raised up over his head. They said, wow, this is a pretty old comic book. So they go online a little bit later and they discover that this comic book is number one in the series of Superman comic books. They dig a little bit further and they learn that this particular comic book, Superman number one, sold at auction in 2015 for $1.5 million. (laughs) $1.5 million sitting in their basement. They didn't even know it. Kind of makes you want to go home right away and (laughs) rifle through your attic or your garage, right? The couple who chose to remain anonymous were quoted as saying, we couldn't have asked for a happier ending. Superman saved the day and our home. Pretty cool, huh? Church family, today we are going to look at another house cleaning story. But it's not Superman who's going to show up. It's going to be the God-man who shows up, whose name is Jesus Christ. And he will share truth today that might not only save somebody's day, it might save somebody's eternity. That would be very cool. John chapter 2, we're looking at verses 13 to 25 this morning. A powerful, powerful moment in John's amazing gospel, which we have committed If you're part of our church family, you know we have committed to studying the Gospel of John for however long it takes. And so here we are in ongoing verse-by-verse explore, sharing verses 13 to 25 today. I'm going to read for us. We'll put the verses up on the screen. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, 
Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man in man's heart. We'll stop right there. Allow me to commit our time. Father, we just say thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege that is ours to open it up, to hold it in our laps, to have your heart on the printed page. We ask now that you, by your spirit, would be our guide and our teacher. Walk us through this text. Lord, let us take sound truth away from it that we can live not just hear about but live out to the end that you're glorified and we're better equipped thanks in jesus name amen and amen now last week when the elder team and i were away at our annual planning weekend you and rob were hanging out if you were here last sunday you were hanging out in chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 you were hanging out at a wedding weren't you a wedding at Cana where Jesus and his disciples had been invited as guests. And in this passage, Jesus performs his first recorded miracle. He turns water into wine. And Rob drew out for you a number of of rich truths, the wedding scene being a prelude to Jesus being the ultimate bridegroom of his church, The, the fact that Jesus' power was revealed in that He has power over creation and the natural world, turning water into the very best vino in the history of winemaking. Jesus did that, demonstrating his glory, revealing God in himself. The scene ends with the statement that the disciples believed Jesus when they saw him do this miracle. It's chapter 2, verse 11 This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this miracle of turning water into wine was called a sign. And the purpose of the sign was to reveal the identity of Jesus. And the effect of that was to bring about belief in the hearts of his followers. Now, did you notice how today's story ends as we read it a moment ago? The account about Jesus driving profiteers out of the temple and being asked for a sign and telling them that he would rebuild a destroyed temple in three days. Did you notice how the story ends? Verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and what? They believed. They believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus 
had spoken. Verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So what we could say at this point is that the Apostle John is on task. He is accomplishing exactly what he intended to accomplish as he presents this gospel record to us. People coming to faith in Jesus. Do you remember John chapter 20 verse 31? We've we've opened up that verse every single morning since we started this series because in 2031, John tells us exactly why he writes his book. He says this, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so John is making it clear in 2.11 and in 2.22 and 23 that this is in fact the effect that happens when people see Jesus do these amazing things. They, they believe in Jesus. And his hope is, as we open up this portion of his word, that that will be the result, that, that some will read this moment out of Jesus' life and they will believe in him. And those of us who believe in him, why our faith will be strengthened even more. May it be so as we share this text together. So let's step into it. Verses 13 and 14 give us a place and a time and a location. They set the stage for what we're about to share. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So right away we know it's Passover. That means it's the springtime of the year. Jesus had been up in Galilee. That's where he performed the miracle of water into wine. But now he makes his way down south to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Every Jewish male over the age of 12 was to attend three national celebrations. Attend them every year. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. They were to make the trek to Jerusalem and celebrate. And so Jesus makes this journey along with hundreds of thousands of others from all over Israel and the Mediterranean world. And they come to Jerusalem at this time of the year to remember the great deliverance that God had worked when he liberated the Jews from bondage and slavery in Egypt 1,400 years prior to this moment. Ten plagues ravaged Egypt and the most devastating of those ten plagues, if you remember, was the last one, the tenth plague, when the firstborn of all of Egypt died. But the Hebrews were spared. And why were they spared? Because they applied lamb's blood to the entrance to their houses as God had directed them to do. And so under the blood, under the covering of blood, death passed over the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, And God wanted this miraculous deliverance to not be forgotten. And it has not been forgotten for 1,400 years, remembered every single year. So people come from all over to the great temple in Jerusalem, which is the focal point for worship by the Jewish people. Herod the Great had built this, this magnificent temple to try to win the loyalty the cooperation of the Jewish people. Herod the Great was not Jewish and the people didn't like him and so he's trying to buy their 
their loyalty, their their applause. And so, man, he lays it out, and he's a big builder. And so he he builds this magnificent temple on the temple, temple mount there in Jerusalem. And so this becomes then the geographical location on earth for the worship of God in its purest form. And this goes all the way back, church family, to Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham and Isaac are on this very same mount. And, 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 and Abraham was going to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. You remember that? Well, this is the location. And so this temple is, is sitting right on that space. This is where the worship of God would happen. And so they come, hundreds of thousands, to remember, to thank God, to worship him, and to offer animal sacrifice for sin according to Old Testament law. Oxen, sheep, pigeons, doves. All of this was but God's grand object lesson, as you know, in the Old Testament, pointing towards Jesus who would become the one last great sacrifice for sin. He'll become the Lamb of God that John the Baptist cried out about in, in chapter 1 of John. But these pilgrims don't know anything about that. It's just Passover season. They know they need to come. They're going to remember what God has done, and they're going to offer sacrifices. And so they come to worship in this place, just like their ancestors have done for centuries. Now, in charge of overseeing all of this are the religious leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, the priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. They're responsible for the spiritual care of the nation. But hypocrisy and and pride and corruption had long before this taken hold of this religious body. They hear the word Passover, and they don't think worship of God remembering God, they hear the word Passover and they hear cha-ching, cha-ching. They hear profit, financial profit. Worshippers coming to Jerusalem from far away could not bring the required sacrifice with them. They would be carrying foreign currency, not local currency. And so under the watchful eye of the religious leaders of Israel, animal sellers and money changers were permitted to do business with the worshipers right on the temple grounds under the covered colonnade known as the stoa. And the stoa is that large structure on the left-hand side of that picture that has the red tile roof. That's the stoa. And that's where the market was set up by the religious leaders. And it is quite an operation because, let's face it, these worshipers are coming and they're kind of stuck. They're over a barrel. They need a sacrifice if they're going to celebrate Passover properly. And so they make their way to the stoa. And first they have to convert their money, which is foreign money, into local currency. Well, that's going to, that's going to cost them. There's a fee for doing that. So you give the money changer a dollar, he gives you back 80 cents. That's the conversion fee. That's 20 cents in the pockets of the priests. Easy money. Cha-ching, cha-ching. And then you go pick out your animal for sacrifice from an approved vendor. But it's going to be at a greatly inflated price. Way more than that animal should actually cost. You're going to pay for that. But what are you going to do? I mean, you're stuck. 
It's what you got to do. It's like going to Disneyland and, and paying four bucks for a bottle of water, right? Right? Well, what are you going to do? You're thirsty. And you're going to pay that four bucks, aren't you? It's what you do. The locals, though, they fare no better than the foreigners who had come to worship the Lord, even if they bring their own animal for sacrifice. Because you see, the sacrifice has to be an unblemished animal without defect in order to be acceptable. Well, guess who's going to grade your, sac- your animal and tell you whether it's acceptable? The priests. They're going to look at your animal and they're going to find something wrong with your animal so that then you will be forced to buy from the approved stock as well, once again at a greatly inflated rate. Cha-ching, cha-ching. More money in the pockets of the priests. No doubt the religious leaders, though, I'm guessing, had rationalized all of this away, saying, you know, we're making it super easy for these worshipers, man. This is, this is way more convenient for them to buy right here on the temple grounds. So it's, it's actually us doing a favor to the worshipers. It's a ton of work for us, but we're willing to do it. Yes, there is a, there is a price for convenience, but it's in the best interest of the worshipers. My guess is that's how the, the priests and the religious leaders had, had rationalized all of this out. And I had a seminary professor in, in my days in school, and he was so fond of saying this over and over. He said it to us maybe a hundred times, I guess, over the years I was there. Gentlemen, never underestimate your ability to rationalize. And he's right. We can rationalize. It's easy to convince ourselves that a certain sin is justifiable. And my guess that that's what it that's what's happened in the hearts of these religious leaders. They've rationalized this, this corrupt business on the temple grounds. They've rationalized it out to where it never even phases them. They're not doing anything wrong. Well, what is Jesus' response to all of this? Verse 15. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he, and he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, church family, nobody was ready for this. Nobody. This simply was not done. These practices in the temple had been going on for a very long time. You don't do this. In fact, I'm guessing Jesus' disciples were blown away. They couldn't believe it. Jesus does not say in verse 16, Well, I, I sure wish you wouldn't do this. Uh, can you please take all of this stuff outside? What does he do? Man, he grabs a strand of ropes, he makes a crude whip out of it, and he starts to go through the stoa from one end to the other, and he is swinging this whip back and forth, and there is a fury that would surely make your your jaw drop and mine if we saw Jesus in this moment. We would never conceive that this is what he would do. I mean, animals are scattering, and, and there's these I mean, oxen. I mean, oxen are big, right? You're going to get out of the way of an oxen when, when it's running. 
and and then the birds are flying and the sheep are bleeding like crazy and and and, and added to that is the sound of coins which have this very distinct tinkling sound when they hit pavement and then they roll right so all of this is converging in this moment it's amazing this is not jesus meek and mild this is jesus ticked and riled i mean he is mad he is really angry now what made jesus so angry well the answer is really in verse 16 take these things away do not make my father's house a house of trade and i'm sure he said it a lot louder than me jesus does not not say that the sellers and the money changers are robbers even though they are and he doesn't say your animals aren't more acceptable than the people's animals which was true they weren't more acceptable He's saying that the religious leaders have turned his father's house into a market, into a bazaar, into an emporium, a a, a hypocritical money-making operation. It wasn't about God. It was all about making money. And so the, the contrast Jesus points out is between my father's house and a marketplace. When Jesus says, my father's house, he's saying, this house is about knowing and loving and treasuring a person. The holy God of heaven, my father, in this temple, my father is supposed to have the preeminent place. He is the supreme treasure here. But not in this moment. It's all about making money. You know, earlier in our worship time, Clint had us singing, Better is one day in your courts... Better is one day in your house than what? A thousand elsewhere. elsewhere. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. That's taken directly from Psalm 84.10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So that's not what's happening at the temple. This Passover season. Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire but you. Well, that's not the heart of the religious leaders of Israel, I can tell you that. It's all about making a buck. This is the heart of Jesus, though. Being in your courts is the best thing ever. I don't desire anything on earth but you. That's Jesus' heart. That's what he brings into the temple. That was not the focus this day. Jesus does not condemn those who needed the animals, the Passover pilgrims who are buying the sheep and the pigeons. They're they're not being implicated here. The anger is directed at those who are selling and handling the currency. Even more, though, Does he condemn those religious leaders from permitting this to happen? It's on them. We know this because this house cleaning act by Jesus here in John, this isn't the only time Jesus does this. Are you aware of that? That this isn't the only time he does this? He'll do it again 
just before his crucifixion, three years from now. Almost like he intentionally brackets his earthly ministry between these, these two bookends where he, he calls for a spiritual house cleaning. And he brackets his whole ministry between these two bookends. Check this out. Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 15. Three years now separated from John chapter 2. And they came to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. The leadership heard this. And they were seeking a way to kill him, to destroy him. Why do they want to do that? Because Jesus is calling them out. He's calling out their their hypocrisy, their, their love of money, their greed. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jesus could see through the veneer of the, this religious rationalizing. Oh, we're just helping the people to worship. We're, we're making their worship more convenient. Jesus saw right through that. Verse 25 that we read in chapter 2 says, He himself knew was what's in the heart of man. He knew right where they were at. What Jesus saw that day in the temple was not an isolated instance of corruption or greed on the part of Israel's spiritual leaders. This is how it was all the time. This was it. And he is angry. My father's not being worshipped. Money is being worshipped in my father's house. Ticked him off. He's so angry. Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Jesus came into the world to display the infinite worth of the Father. To show us God because He is God. To free us from the killing effects of sin, of which the love of money is but one of many loves. Deadly loves that would condemn us were it not for the cross of Jesus Christ. The disciples see this incredible display of fury. They see Jesus wielding this homemade whip of ropes, scattering animals and dumping money boxes and turning over tables and saying with a fire in his eye, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. They see all of that. And although it probably doesn't happen in this moment, eventually John and the other disciples, they remember a psalm. Psalm 69, verse 9. Prophetically, King David says these words, zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Jesus, with a boldness that here in the public square that we all wish we could have, says, man, this is God's house. This is God's house, my Father's house. He deserves better. He's worthy of clean worship from clean hearts, not coveting, money-grabbing hearts, especially those who should, from those who should know better. My Father deserves better than that. 
Jesus was consumed with zeal for his father's house. And reproaches, no doubt, they were raining down on Jesus this day like a torrent. What in God's name are you doing? That would have been their question. What in the world do you think you're doing? If you flip your note page over, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, church family, this is a fascinating response. If you just ponder it for a second, we might expect that the Pharisees would just kind of flick their finger. The religious leaders would flick their finger and the temple guard would come running in. They would arrest Jesus and carry him away and that would be it because he's really disturbing the peace. We might have thought that would be the way it should, should unfold. But it doesn't happen like that at all. Why not? Well, it doesn't happen that way because the religious leaders know that what they're doing is wrong. They're ripping off the people. The people know they're being ripped off. And Jesus has called them out. He's exposed them. And so what are they going to do? Well, they've got to try and deflect the attention off of themselves. And so what do they do? They ask for a sign from Jesus in order to deflect attention away from themselves. It's it's a dodge. It's It's a trick. It's a ploy. They want to deflect the focus off of their greed and and make it now about Jesus' authority. What sign do you do that gives you the authority to do this? Show us a sign. Give us a sign. Because if that happens, well, then the attention is off of them. And Jesus knows what they're up to. Again, he knows the hearts of all people. Verse 24 says that. But he has successfully exposed their corruption, and so he seizes upon their question. And for the first time, church family, he points to the watershed moment upon which all of time and eternity rests, his death and his resurrection. It's the first time Jesus brings that out in John's gospel, but it happens right here. What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answers them, verse 19, Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. They respond in verse 20. It's been 46 years building this temple, and will you rebuild it in three days? Herod the Great had begun construction of this temple 46 years before, and it's still under construction. It's not even finished as Jesus stands here. They mock Jesus for the absurdity of his comment. you got to be kidding. But Jesus is thinking on an entirely different level, isn't he, than these religious leaders. John comments in verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his what? His body. His body. Jesus was saying, just like you will kill the worship in the temple with your money-hungry greed and materialism, you're going to kill me. You'll kill my body, this physical temple. I and my Father are one. In the same way that you treasure money more than the Father turning the temple into a market for your own profit, you will use that same heart of greed and envy and and pride and self-serving to kill me. 
In fact, you'll purchase my death for 30 pieces of silver. That's the heart. And John is pointing us even this early towards Jesus' cross, towards his resurrection. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Again, remember the goal of John's gospel. The reason that he writes is so that we would know who Jesus is and then believe in him unto eternal life. Jesus knows he has an appointment with death to pay for the sin of mankind. He knows it will be the religious leaders who are going to put him to death. But he also knows that death will not hold him. It cannot, it cannot defeat him. It cannot keep him. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. That is worth an amen. Jesus is telling everyone here, I will raise up my body, this temple, by a glorious resurrection after three days. Now, church family, when we get to John chapter 10 in our study, Jesus is going to say this to us. Chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For the reason the Father loves me is because I lay down my life that I may what? That I may take it up again. That I may rebuild it. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down And I have authority to what? Raise it up again. Take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Jesus permits his temple to be destroyed, to pay our sin debt. But he says, I will rebuild it in three days. And he does on the first Easter morning, doesn't he? Praise be to him. Praise be to him. In John chapter 11, standing outside the tomb of a dear friend, named Lazarus, who had died, whom Jesus is going to raise from the dead, he says this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Hallelujah. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That Jesus died and rose from the dead and through faith in him and what he has done, you can have life forever. Do you believe this? Yes. Yes. And unless you believe this, you do not have life. Life everlasting. Destroy this temple and in three days. I will raise it up. Verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed. They believed the scriptures. They believed the word that Jesus had spoken. Do we believe it? Amen. We do. We do. Now, church family, before we leave this, I'm confident that for Jesus, there's another level of meaning that we would not want to miss here. That majestic temple in Jerusalem 46 years in the making and and still not done, it's soon going to be destroyed. The Romans are going to come in, if you know your Jewish history, the Romans are going to come in and they're going to destroy this temple. In the year 70 AD, they will come in and they will not leave a single stone on top of another stone. They will level the temple mount. 
Jesus actually foretold that this would happen in Luke chapter 21. Jesus says he'll rebuild the temple again in three days. And by that, I believe he's also saying that he will replace this earthly temple and become the new place where everyone may meet God and find true authentic worship and fellowship and relationship. No longer will there be the blood of, of, of bulls and goats and, and, and lambs and pigeons. and No more, no more, because Jesus will have offered up the one great single perfect sacrifice for sin. And so he becomes the temple to which all come. Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. I tell you, Jesus says, something greater than the temple is what? It's here. It's here right now. It's me. He's infinitely greater than any earthly man-made structure. By his death, by his resurrection, he'll replace this temple in Jerusalem and he'll be the first and best and only place that the true worship of God ever needs to come. Aren't you glad that's true? No more pilgrimages to Jerusalem. None of that. Do you by chance recall the words of Jesus as he speaks to a woman by a well in John chapter 4? We're going to get there before too long. Jesus will say this, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. In other words, authentic worship will not be attached to Jerusalem or any other geographical place. It will be spiritual, and it will be true. And who is Jesus? He's the truth. I'm the new temple. When I raise my body from the dead, everywhere in the world, people may come to God through me. There will be no pilgrimage anymore. There will be only the movement of the heart from unbelief to belief, from self-trust to trust in me. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Do you believe it? Well, church family, as we wrap up this incredible section of John, let me challenge us with one closing thought before we let you go home. Are you aware, you're a pretty smart bunch, so I'm guessing you are, Are you aware of what the Bible says about you when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection for you? Are you aware of what the Bible says about you? You become a temple. Did you know that? The Bible says that about you? That you become a temple. You become a dwelling place for God's Spirit who comes to live in you when you give your life to Jesus Christ. God knows you can't live the life that He wants you to live in your own strength. And so He, by His Spirit, comes to live inside of you, the Scriptures say, so that you will have the power to live for Him in the way that He would want you to do that. And so He comes to live in you 
you become a living, breathing, walking, talking temple. Did you know that? You say, where does it say that? You better be able to back that up. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20? Or do you not know that your body is a what, church? A temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Is Jesus your Lord and Savior today? Then you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Purchased with blood. So here's the question, and you know where I'm going. I I know you know. (laughs) Here's the question. Were Jesus... To walk into your temple the way he did here in John chapter 2, what would he find? What would he find? Would he find a clean and uncluttered, sacred space that promotes the right and beautiful worship of God that that God is so, so worthy of receiving? Is that what he would find? A clean house? Or would he find that that his temple, that he paid for with his own blood, keep that in mind, would he find that, that you have allowed things to come in to the temple? And, and that space is cluttered with one or more unholy, unclean, yes, sinful practices or distractions of some kind. Have you, as the keeper of the temple, as the religious leaders did in Jesus' day, have, have you permitted other loves to come in and displace your first love who is Jesus coveting greed love of money pride alcohol drugs pornography an immoral relationship, envy, fear, anger, an unforgiving spirit. The list of things that Jesus would feel compelled to overturn in the temple, it's very long. Were Jesus to enter your temple, I ask again, what would he find? Brother, sister, what would he find? Jesus is in the temple cleaning business. Do you understand that? He is in that business. It's what he does, especially with what he has paid for with his blood. And if we don't clean the house... He's going to clean the house. And when he cleans the house, that's painful, right? But he will clean the house. It's so much better if we 
care enough about the house, the temple, that we strive hard to keep it clean for the Spirit of God who resides there. So once again, what will Jesus find when he walks through your temple or my temple? What will he find? The closing words of Psalm 139 supply us with the perfect prayer to pray as we contemplate that question. Search me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me. Search my my house. Expose the sin. I confess it. I repent of it. I don't want it in my life. The risen Lord Jesus looks for a temple that's clean. May he find that in you and in me. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today's the day that you would want to invite him into your life and say, clean my house. Clean it completely out. Make it clean for your spirit to come in. But you might be saying, wow, if you knew my story, God would never want to live in my house. There is so much junk there. He would never want to live in my house. I just want to tell you that is not true. Church family, tell that person that's not true. That's not true. You can't have a house that's dirty enough that Jesus can't come in and clean it completely. Completely. That's why he died on the cross. That's why he rose from the dead, so you could have a clean house. So if you don't know Jesus today, today's the day. Ask Jesus to come. Pay your sin debt. Wash you clean. And make a way for his spirit to come live in you. And if you know Jesus, you know what you need to do. Search me, oh God. Know my heart. Make me clean. Let's pray. Let's pray. How we thank you. How we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your precious word. And for your words here in John chapter 2. Thank you for this day when you, <laughs> you took action in a way that we might never have thought you would. We just picture you as so gentle, and, and yet here you are, cleaning house. We pray that you would find us as you walk through our, our houses, each one of us in this room who love you and know you and claim allegiance to you. We pray that you would find a clean house. If not, do your good work. Cleanse us. Make us clean. Expose our sin. Show us so that we can confess it, repent of it, and live holy. And all for that one who needs a Savior. Today may you be that. Thank you for being willing to come into our house and live forever with us. We love you, but only because you loved us first. And all God's people said, amen Amen and amen.